I would love for you guys to turn to Luke chapter 21. Let me just see if I've turned my mic on. Yeah, okay. Uh, we're going to be in Luke 21. And I do want to say to uh, the mothers that we do love you and we are thankful for you. Um, I learned in a, in a class recently at school that um, children who do not have the nurture of their mother uh, at infancy, I mean newborns, um, that their brains actually physically do not develop rightly. Uh, that God intended that sort of nurturing relationship. And one of the things my wife said is that uh, women reflect an aspect of God's character in a unique way that only they can do. And I think about the way in which that points to Jesus, right? So an, an infant uh, separated from their mother will not develop, their, their neural synapses do not develop properly. And we separated from Jesus, our hearts do not develop properly. Uh, and so what a beautiful image of the way in which God has given us mothers to reflect what he does to develop us into his image. And that's a beautiful thing. Um, I, I can't say enough to say thank you to mothers, so I'm not even going to try. We love you, thank you, we celebrate you. We don't have a carnation or anything like that for you, but that doesn't mean that we don't love you deeply. Um, let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll get into Luke. God, we do thank you for this time, and we do thank you for mothers. And uh, we know that Scripture refers to you as Father, but we also know that you are not male, that you are transcendent, and that as you made both male and female, you made them all in your image. And we worship you for that. We thank you for the way that our mothers, in their love for us, their care for us, their compassion, their tenderness, reflect your glory in that way. And I pray, Lord, as we turn to your word this morning, that we would be, we would be challenged to consider the implications of what the scriptures teach for the way that we live our lives, that we would be challenged to think about the fact that many don't know that compassion. Many don't know your love. There are people in our own neighborhoods, in our own workplaces, and, and in other places far across the world who don't know that there is a God who loves them deeply, who would love to tenderly scoop them up into his arms and care for them. And I pray that we might be mouthpieces for that truth, that, that we might be the ones whose feet are beautiful as we bring good news to a lost world. Lord, would you put that burden on our hearts, I pray, as we look at this text this morning. Amen. Uh, again, we're going to be in Luke 21, verses 34 to 38. But before I get there, I don't know if, if you have noticed this. It caught my eye sort of recently. Not too long ago, they put up some new signs on the I-10, right around Chandler Boulevard. Um, there are signs that say something to the effect of speed, safety, corridor, next 20 or so miles, speed limit strictly enforced. Um, maybe if you don't have a lead foot, you've not noticed those signs. I have noticed them. Um, of course, going over the speed limit in any place is against the law, right? So any speed limit is a prohibition against breaking that law. But for some reason, the Department of Public Safety, DPS, uh, wanted to be especially clear that this particular area is under extra scrutiny and speeding will not be tolerated here, okay? And if you think about it, that, that's actually 
a rather kind gesture for those of you who do have a lead foot. And the truth is, pretty much everybody breaks the speed limit, right? I mean, if you want to prove that man is inherently sinful, all you have to do is spend like 20 minutes in a car, and it's proof. And if you get caught speeding, you generally have no excuse for doing that because of the speed limit signs are posted everywhere. I've noticed that if you use like Apple uh, for your Apple phone for um, directions, they now post the speed limit on the GPS right there. So you are especially without a- an excuse, okay? Uh, but if you get pulled over speeding on the I-10 safety corridor, then you're an absolute fool, Right? Because you have no excuse to plead your case against the officer. Not only are there speed limit signs posted like usual, but there are several additional large signs in both white and yellow telling you extra care is being taken in this particular place of the road to catch you if you are speeding. So I don't mean to embarrass anyone in this room, but if you've received a speeding ticket in that area I don't know what to say except you're kind of a blockhead. Um, You sort of deserved it. Now, the reason I start with this little illustration is because Jesus has given us plenty of warning signs to let us know that the judgment of God's creation is near. I mean, we've spent, I think, four weeks now in Luke 21 looking at this particular idea. It is coming. And if you fail to be prepared, it's not because you didn't have fair warning. It's because you were foolish enough to ignore the signs that have been posted, like a speeder on I-10. So let me remind you, first Jesus looks close to tell people that on the immediate horizon, in the very near future from when he is speaking, 70 AD, both Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed. And that when they see the armies approaching, it's time for them to flee and get out. That was a warning sign about the immediate fate of Jerusalem in 70 AD. I think it's also a symbolic picture of what is to come, that there will be a greater day of judgment coming upon the world. But then after looking close, Jesus then sort of shoots the telescope out a little bit further. He looks far off to the end of human history to tell people that a day is coming when he will return to judge the world. And he's going to come on a cloud with power and great glory. And he's going to redeem his people and he's going to crush his enemies. And these are huge warning signs that we are intended to take heed of, sort of like the safety corridor. I mean, when Jesus shows up, nobody will be able to say, I had no idea that judgment was coming. Especially in America where just about every family's got a Bible in their house somewhere. Those trying to claim that excuse will have no excuse. And I believe they will feel as foolish as they actually are. That even though they had been warned by God himself that this day was on the horizon, they were unprepared for its arrival. Well, now in our passage of Scripture, Jesus is going to do something different. He's looked close with the the telescope. He's looked far with the telescope. Now he's going to flip that thing around, and he's going to ask us to look inside. He's going to tell us to look inward because the truth is, you and I, we're not in 70 AD. And as much as I would love for Jesus to return in my lifetime, many generations have passed thinking that he would come back and he has not yet. And so there is a likelihood that I will get to the end of my life and he will not return. And yet he is coming. 
And we will not escape the encounter with Jesus because even at the end of our lives, whether we see him coming in power on a cloud or not, we will stand before his throne to give account for our lives. Standing before Jesus is a reality that will come upon all who dwell on the face of the earth. And so I think that in this particular passage of Scripture, Jesus wants his followers to remember that on an appointed day in the future, every person will stand before Christ in, ju- Christ in judgment. And we best be ready for that day, no matter what judgment or what, what generation we belong to. It's our responsibility to be prepared. So let's read Luke 21, 34 through 38. Jesus is teaching, and he says, But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place, and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Uh, What I want to do with this text is kind of quickly draw out three things that sort of summarize the last month that we've spent in Luke 21 in what we call the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus is talking about what is ahead for Jerusalem and Israel and God's people in future generations. In other words, I want to try and give you some application points kind of at the end of all of this, okay? We've learned a lot about the past. We've learned a lot about the future. So now let's spend a few minutes talking about the right now. What does this mean for us? First, at the end of his teaching uh, on the Mount of Olives, Jesus gives us this command. Do you see it? Watch. Watch. Verse 34, he says, watch. But notice what he tells us to watch. After telling us, look, there's going to be signs in the sky, in the sun, in the moon, and the stars. There's going to be earthquakes and wars. There's going to be all kinds of signs. That's not what Jesus tells us to watch for, is it? He says, watch what? Yeah, that's not a rhetorical question. You can actually answer. He says, watch what? Yourselves. Watch yourselves. I want you to understand the danger is not that we're going to miss the crazy signs that are going to happen in the skies and on the earth as if we we might fail to know that Jesus has arrived. That won't happen. But what we could make the mistake of doing is failing to watch ourselves so that when he does arrive, our hearts are prepared for him to come. I mean, I promise you, preparing our hearts for his return is far more important than identifying the signs of his return in creation. Another verse that sort of echoes this same sentiment, 1 Peter 5, 8, it says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And we have a very real enemy who would love nothing more than to devour us before the day that Christ comes. And so what Jesus is telling us is that It doesn't actually help us very much to scrutinize the skies. Instead, we need to scrutinize ourselves to get ready for his coming. I mean, how tragic would it be for us to scrutinize all the signs in the skies only to be devoured by the devil as he sneaks up behind us 
before Christ comes. 1 Timothy 4.16 tells us, Keep a close watch on yourselves and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Friends, we're called to watch our own hearts as we wait for the coming of Christ. We are called to persist in the teaching of Christ, to love God and to love others as the greatest commandments that he has passed on to us, to obey him in those things, to not allow the devil to deceive us into thinking that Christ will return for us when we have not lived lives that proclaim him as Lord. And so for my church family, I want to repeat these words of Jesus to you. Watch yourselves. Guide your hearts in paths of righteousness. Seek the life of the Holy Spirit so that when Christ does return, you might not be disqualified from receiving the inheritance that he longs to pass on to you. So watch, Jesus tells us. Second, wait. Wait in prayer. Look at verses 35 through 36. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place, and to stand before the Son of Man. Jesus tells his disciples that all of the things which he has foretold, those things are indeed coming. Watch yourselves because they are coming. Be prepared for these things. And to be prepared, he says, wait up. Pray for strength. Um, Fortunately for both of us or all of us, I don't think he literally means that Christians can't go to sleep. Like, I don't think he's saying don't ever take a nap or get some rest, right? I believe that what Jesus means here is that our lives are meant to be marked by an expectant posture, a praying watchfulness, a readiness that makes us always in conversation with Christ, prepared for him to come. Lord, if this is the day, I'm prayed up and ready for it to come. Um, I, I take my kids to school, and when it gets close to the time for us to leave for school, Um, I yell at them, not like in an angry way, but, you know, around the house, wherever they may be doing their childish things. And I I say, uh, finish getting ready. You know, get your shoes on, pack your lunches up, grab your backpacks, go wait by the door because we're going to leave. And I admit that when they don't obey me, I get upset, right? I get frustrated when the time comes to actually walk out the door and they still don't have their socks and shoes on. Their teeth are still not brushed. Their lunches are still on the counter. I, I get upset when, when it's time to go and I'm ready and I've warned them and then they're not ready. I've told them what to do, but they've not gone and done it. In just a few chapters from where we're reading in Luke now, Jesus uh, is talking with his disciples just before his arrest and murder. And they're in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's gone there to pray because he knows what's ahead of him. And Jesus takes his disciples and and he essentially says to them, I want you to wait here and stay up and pray. I'm going to go over there. My heart is heavy and I'm going to pray. And I want you to wait here and pray that you may not fall into temptation. And as much as we're called to watch our own hearts, we are also called to wait in prayer. Waiting means praying. 
It means looking to Christ in prayer, asking the Father for strength, depending on the Holy Spirit to carry us. It means that our hearts are constantly in conversation with God, crying out, search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there is any evil in me. Weed it out and lead me in the everlasting way. And sadly, you probably know the story, when Jesus returns after asking his disciples, wait here and pray, I'll be back. But pray that you don't fall into temptation. He returns, and guess what he finds them doing? Sleeping. They failed to wait for him and pray like he asked. And man, I, I hope, I pray that when Christ returns for his bride, which Maricopa Springs is part of, that he doesn't find our body, our church, asleep. But instead, he finds us with calloused knees because we have been waiting in prayer for him to come. And we don't know exactly what hour Jesus is coming or we would do what you do before you're about to have company over, which is you quickly clean the house and you throw things under the couch and you, you do whatever it takes to straighten it up, right? But we don't know. We don't have that opportunity. It's not like we can rush to prepare a few days or a few hours before he comes and get everything clean and tidy so that when he walks through the door, it looks like we've been ready. Which means that every moment we need to be waiting for him. Living lives of prayer. Lives of quiet holiness seeking to be obedient to what he has taught us, running from sin and temptation wherever it rears its ugly head, constantly on our knees before God, asking that he would be faithful to carry us across the finish line, knowing that our race is not done until he has done so, depending with our whole hearts upon his grace and his mercy, which lifts us up when we stumble, leaning on the Holy Spirit who strengthens us, and intercedes for us as we always ask for the strength that God would give us to stand before Christ in his redemptive power. And as we do that, we don't get discouraged on the days when it's hard. We don't get weighed down. If we do fall asleep, we don't spend the next week beating ourselves up. We don't lose heart. We don't let this world overcome us because our God is faithful even when we are not. And he will return for his bride at his appointed time. And he will also sustain us until that day. All of us who call on him with a sincere heart. Finally, the last thing I want to point out is that we need to work. We need to work. Look at verse 36. Let me read it again. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Listen, the fact of the matter is, more than likely, if you're already here at church this morning, then you know what it takes to escape the terrible day of Christ's return. You know what it takes to stand on that day. If you don't, then let me tell you, what it takes is a heartfelt belief that Jesus is the Son of God who died an innocent man's death so that you being guilty could be free. Hopefully you know that the only way to stand before Jesus, the Son of Man, is to be clothed in his righteousness, which he offers to give you 
freely through faith in him. Hopefully you know that. But the truth is, most of the people out there, most of the people that are not here on a Sunday morning or in some other church building this morning, most of the people in our city, in our neighborhoods, most of the people in our places of work, they, they don't know that. I mean, the day of Christ's return is coming and they do not know what is required to stand before him when he comes. And so far be it from us as Christians to keep it a secret when the return of Jesus is imminent. Far be it from us to have our confidence, I'm good, I know how to stand before the Lord when he comes, and yet not share that good news with those who don't yet know. Far be it from us to hoard Christ for ourselves while those around us perish without the good news of his redemption. It could be today. He could return today. And if that were the case, many people that we know, that we love, would find themselves in the terrifying position of being under the wrath of God and not the grace of God. Does that not break our hearts? And and I think it's safe to say that we bear some responsibility for that. We do not bear responsibility for their lack of faith. That is on them. But we do bear responsibility for not telling them about the grace of God proved in the cross of Christ as he shed his blood. So ask yourself a question. Why is Jesus waiting? Why has he waited 2,000 years? Why didn't he come back yesterday? Why didn't he come back this morning? Why didn't he come back 100 years ago? I think that we get to answer that question in 1 Timothy 2. Paul writes that it is God's desire that all people would be saved and come to a knowledge of him. All people would be saved and come to a knowledge of him. That's why God's waiting. He's waiting for more people to come to him in surrender. And in order for that to happen, in order for God to accomplish his mission, he's done three things. Quickly, here they are. Ready? He's given us his word through which we know truth. Without the scriptures, we are lost. We do not know what God is like. But God has given it to us so that we might know. Two, he's given us his Holy Spirit through which he empowers us to preach this word and through which he changes the hearts of those we proclaim it to. And three, he has called us to work. I hope you understand, if God wanted to, he could write the gospel message in the sky in neon lights. He could send choirs of angels. He could send out a mass email. He could produce a show for Netflix where he lays it out. He could make it rain donuts with the gospel message written on them with icing on top. He could do one of those things or something entirely else. But do you understand how he chose to get the gospel message out? He chose you to get the gospel message out. Through you. Through me. Through the work of Christians telling the world the good news. Christ died because he loves you. God has chosen to do it through us. 
proclaiming that on that day when Christ stands and man will be judged for his action, there is a way to stand up under that judgment. There is a way in which people will be able to endure the scrutiny of Christ's eyes as he bores into their soul. There is salvation for sinners through the grace of God. But how are they going to hear if we don't tell them? How will they stand if we don't share with them the good news? Remember Romans 10, like Shelley read, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek or American and Muslim or any other nation, culture, skin color, or language. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then are they going to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written? How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who preach good news. I, I just want to encourage you, exhort you, brothers and sisters, may we not be arrogant that on the day that Christ returns, we will stand while others perish. Instead, let us have our hearts break that on that day, many will be lost under the judgment of Christ. And I ask that the kindness of God would work in our hearts so that we would see his kindness not only as a gift to us, but a gift that we are blessed to give to those around us, that we might also point many more to the good news of Jesus. Um, we're going to do something a little bit different. I think I have some volunteers who are going to help me move some of these chairs over. And I'm sorry that we don't have a great uh, stage set up here. Um, but I want to spend a couple of minutes just talking with some people um, who I think have a passion about this topic. And I don't know whether they would say that they have a gift for it or not, but I think they would say that it's something that they do and they seek to do. And so I thought rather than me just talking your ear off, uh, because this is a challenging topic, I think. Um, I thought maybe what I could do is bring some other people from our church up here, and, uh, and we could chat, and you could get some different perspectives here. So we're going to spend a few minutes talking through this together, and those of you who I have invited to do this with me, why don't you come on up? Go ahead, grab a seat. So, unfortunately, they have to share a mic, and I know that they're passionate about this, so if they fight for the mic, that's okay. You just need to know that they're doing it because they, they love it. Um, real quick, why don't you guys uh, just pat... Oh, there's, we've got more. we got two. Whoa! Okay. Um, real quick, why don't you each kind of introduce yourself, and then the first question that I have for you guys is, how would you define evangelism? Um, I'm Jennifer Martin, and for me, evangelism is just sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with those around me who God places in my life. And Simple. I like yeah. it. <laughs> just, 
Give him that one. That's the good one. Okay. Don't ever buy a $10 mic off Amazon. Check. No, you're good. You're good. You're good. I'm okay? Yes. All right. Praise the Lord. My name is Gabe, and uh, uh, it's the good news of uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we were entrusted uh, to, uh, which is a privilege when you think about it, uh, to spread that message. It's the message of reconciliation. And to me, that's what evangelism is. It's, it's, it's uh, something we have to be at all times prepared to do and, uh, and then do it when we're told to. I agree. My name's Trevor. Uh, two things I would say is, one, evangelism is simply the opening of the mouth to preach the gospel. Um, things like good deeds and sharing our testimony of how God saved us, those are good things. But the simple definition of evangelism is simply preaching Christ crucified, buried, and raised. And if we don't or are not doing that, then ultimately we're not evangelizing people. Yeah. Uh, I think two of the things that I struggle with this is I remember being young, coming across a quote. I think it was St. Francis of Assisi who said, preach the gospel always and when necessary, use words. And I remember loving that, thinking I can preach the gospel just by serving people. But what Trevor said is, is super important. It takes, listen, there's a God. He sent his son Christ who died for you. He's crucified and risen. Do you believe? And, and also understanding that that's whether they believe or not is not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to speak it. Um, maybe we can work the mic back this way. Trevor, I'll start with you. Because uh, I think all three of you do this very differently. I, I have them up here because I, I, in various ways I've witnessed them doing evangelism. Uh, and so, I th but I think they approach it very differently, which is good. Because I, I don't, we don't want cookie cutters. Like we all have to figure out how we do this ourselves. So give us a little bit of insight into, like, what does this look like for you on a, on a daily basis? How do you go about sharing that message? Yeah. Um, first, I, I think this is important, is oftentimes, and Grady said, hey, are any of us gifted to evangelize, to preach? And I think the Bible does tell us some people are gifted to do that. But all of us are called into daily life, living on mission for Christ. So for me personally, that honestly looks like keeping a radar out Wherever I go, whether I'm buying a candy bar, which I really don't, or whether I go to the grocery store, or whether I um, am engaging people in day-to-day -day life, I want to be aware of that they need Christ. And for me personally, one thing I do is I carry around a little tract in my wallet, like a business card, and I hand those out. So if I'm at the grocery store buying something and I'm checking out in line, I honestly, when I run my credit card and the lady's standing there and she probably doesn't want to engage with me, I just say, hey, this is for you. And I hand her a little tract, and it's very vague, but it has a website on it that points people to Christ. Um, for me, that's the main means in my daily life that I'm preaching Christ. But for another example, yesterday I'm at work, and a couple days ago my wife asked me at home, she said, Hey, babe, have you been able to share the gospel with people at work? And it was a great question because I think as zealous as some people might go, Trevor, you're a zealous guy, you want to preach Christ, I need to be reminded to be intentional with the gospel. Um, so then yesterday at work, I have a coworker in the office next to me, and I went in, and it was in the morning. We were just small talking for a couple minutes, and then I was just intentional. And I actually, either God dropped that in my mind the day before, or at some point I was thinking about this, how I needed to be explicit with this kid. 
And so I just said, hey, you know, I want to be real with you right here. I'm going to ask you a hard question. Do you recognize that if you don't have Christ, you're going to die in your sins and suffer the wrath of God? Sitting in office, at work, people are probably listening. And we got to have maybe a 10-minute conversation. I got to explain to him what the gospel was, treasuring Christ, invited him to church. Um, So that's, you know, that's another way. So ultimately, we have to be explicit wherever you're at. Whether that's in small circles, bigger circles, we just need to be ready and willing to open our mouth and engage people with the gospel. So that's right how on. it looks for me. Amen. Uh, I just, you can't leave them guessing. You know, there's different types of ways, <clears throat> ways to evangelize. I'm a personal evangelist, so I'm, I'm going to talk face-to-face with somebody every day uh, as God directs it. Uh, so I pray for that every day. I pray that God puts me put someone in my path, and that through the Holy Spirit, I'm going to be ready and say the right things. Uh, uh, for example, uh, I was at the bank last week. I shared this with you already, but uh, I was in line, and I was the second person in line, and the, the lady that was getting helped at the, at the teller, she had four bank books out, and she was reconciling, and here's that word again, her bank books, and, and the lady behind me was starting to lose it because she's like, are you kidding me? And, and she was getting louder and louder, and, 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 and she was going to blow up at any second because this one lady was taking everybody's time, and the poor bank teller was just doing his best. He was being very patient. And I was get, she was making me impatient, right? So I, had to, so I literally had to ask God to check me, right? And, and so he did because he's so faithful. And so I calmed down, and I turned around, and I, I just looked at her, and I said, it's going to be okay, Right? And she started to tear up a little bit, and she goes, oh, I'm just blah, blah, blah. She goes, how can you be so calm? I said, well, it's Christ in me, right? And that was the truth. It was Christ in me that calmed me down right at that moment. So I waited outside for her. Uh, uh, the, uh, I just felt compelled uh, to talk to this woman. She came outside, and, and she saw me, and she came right over to me. And she was starting to tear up again. She goes, I'm so sorry. I, I didn't mean to uh, get so upset in there, but... Uh, you know, our, our family's going through grave, grave financial crisis right now. And I saw this lady up there with four bank books with all this money in the bank. And it was just, I was feeling all these bad things. And, I, and, and, and she goes, would you, she, would you pray for me, she said, uh, about our finances. I said, I'd be happy to do that. But before, can I ask you a question? Uh, where are you with God? Where are you at with God? And she cheered up even more. And uh, she said that, uh, she walked away from church years and years ago and, and never came back. And then I asked her another question. Was, was, when you walked away, was, was it easy? I mean, did, did, did you ever look back? Was it just easy to walk away? And she goes, yeah, it kind of was. I'll be honest with you. And, and, then, and then I said, well, I've got some good news for you, but first I've got to share some bad news with you. And the bad news uh, being, uh, you know, that we are all sinners and that uh, we need to be saved. And and God is a wrathful God uh, towards sin, that he hates sin. And then I said, but I have some good news for you, too. And I shared the gospel of Jesus Christ. And she received Christ right there on the sidewalk in front of the Bank of America. And, and, her, and I looked at her friend. She goes, oh, don't look at me. She goes, I go to church. <laughs> she goes, I'll take her to church. I said, praise the Lord. Good, good, good job on that. So uh, uh, that's how I go about it, uh, pretty much. Um. Well, I'm inspired by them. That freaks me out a little bit, I have to say. So for you introverts, which I am, um, 
I go about it a little bit differently. I tend to, I put myself in a position to spend time with non-believers. And through that, God develops relationships. And typically through those, one of two things happens. Either, and this happens a lot. People say, why? Like, I don't understand why you're loving me like this, why you're serving me like this. And it gives me an opportunity to share what Christ did for me. And then the second thing is, um, if it's not that, typically there's a point that everyone goes through in life when they lose hope. Hmm. <laughs> Something's going on, um, medical issues, issues with family, and they just don't have hope at that time. And you're able to share with them the hope of Christ. So, I mean, I have, um, I guess I don't know if I ever intentionally go out like looking for a conversion as much as to love people and show them the kindness and compassion that Christ showed me. And through that, God just does amazing things. And um, sometimes it's years. Um, one of my favorite stories is of a friend who adamantly hated God. And I mean, obviously that's who we are before Christ, but was very vocal about it, hated church, hated everything about it. And I shared with her and loved her and served her, and it took years, mm. think about five years before she came to know the Lord. And so mm. for me, it's sometimes it's quick. Sometimes it happens right on the spot, right when you meet someone. But typically for me, it's a relationship that can even take years. So. Yeah, I love that. And because we, we are all naturally engaged in those kinds of relationships. I'm probably more like you, actually, the more introverted side. And I don't know if you guys were around when my dad came and preached, I think it was like January of this year. But one of the things that he loves to challenge people to do is to find somebody that they're interacting with and just begin to pray for them and see what God does. Um, I took my dad up on that challenge. I've actually been praying for two guys. I spent a lot of time in Starbucks. You might be surprised to find out. And um, uh, I just, I, I've identified two people there, um, Manny and Dave, and I've been praying for both of them daily and uh, have been able to have some amazing conversations. It's amazing how when I begin to pray for people, God begins to do a work in them. The pressure is off me because here comes Dave and he sits down and he goes, hey, I, I hear that you're a minister. Uh, I'm not really a religious guy, but uh, let me tell you a bit about my life. And, and then a couple weeks later, he comes up to me and he says, uh, I just found out my wife has breast cancer. Would you pray for her? I'm like, Dave, I'll do it right now. Sit down and let's pray. So I've been slowly engaging with Dave. I'm not, the, I'm not quite like as bold as Gabe or Trevor, but I look for those opportunities as well. Let me ask you guys one more uh, quick question. And, and that would be briefly, talk about what motivates you to do this. Because I can get up here and say, look, we need to do this. It's what the Bible says. And hopefully that does motivate us. But there are other motivations as well. And so what tugs at your heart to be intentional about the relationships? Look for the opportunities in line. Build a website. What, what drives you towards that? Um, for me, I, I was just so lost. But it was very apparent. <laughs> you know, we're always lost. But... God really transformed my life. And so because of that, I was just super excited <laughs> to share with others what God had done for me. Like that experience of freedom and just God's grace was overwhelming. So that, I think, is what started me to begin with. And then just having compassion on people who are just lost and broken fuels me to um, 
want to show them the kindness of God. Yeah, it always starts with God's love uh, towards us. Um, uh, you know, it's hard, sometimes hard to explain how you feel about that to folks, what, what he did for you, mm -hmm. right, what he did for me. So that's, that's the first motivator. The second one is, uh, uh, you know, the Gospel of Matthew, you know, the Great Commission uh, to share the Gospel. And, and it's, we're asked to be obedient to that. So, uh, so it's a commandment. Uh, and I want to be faithful to that. By the way, I was just thinking the first two letters in the word gospel are go. So, <laughs> right? uh, and then the uh, uh, and then in Second um, Corinthians five again, we're told that we're entrusted. And Grady touched on that a little bit. You know, God could have used anybody, anything, any element. Uh, he didn't use angels. He used us. He used redeemed men and women uh, who loved Jesus Christ to uh, uh, and entrusted us with that gospel. And, and when I think about it like that, it's, it's, I, I get tearful when I think about it like that because it's, hmm. why me? Right? Amen. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5 is tattooed on my wrist here. <laughs> and my whole tattoo is about the gospel. But that specific verse says Paul's talking about his ministry of preaching the gospel. And he says, the love of Christ compels or controls him to preach Christ. Um, so... One is, it's, it's the compelling grace of God. I mean, the more we see Christ, what he's done to us, how he's lavished us, the, the overflow is a, a compellingness to go. Um, but one thing I wanted to share, and I think this is vital, if we're to preach Christ properly, is we have to have a proper and a big view of God's plan of redemption. Um, we need to understand what God has determined to do before the foundation of the world and how he has been carrying that plan out in his perfect wisdom and power and that we are participating in what God is doing. Um, when we preach, the reality is I haven't seen a lot of people come to faith in Christ right when I preach the word to them. But that doesn't detour me from preaching Christ because my hope is not that people in their own ability are going to come to Christ. But I know that uh, Scott quoted it earlier, Revelation 5, that Jesus has people that he purchased with his own blood from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people and some of those are in Maricopa, and some of those are in Chandler and Gilbert, and to the ends of the earth. So if we don't have that perspective, I think we're going to be limited in our preaching of Christ because it's going to be a small view of how he's accomplishing his plan. So, I, I want to point out one final thing here, which is that um, of this panel, I'm the only one who grew up in a Christian home, right? Or, I mean, at least you guys were all, you all came to know Jesus later in life, not like from childhood, Right. Uh, neither did you. What? At least not out the womb. Well, I, don't, I, don't, I say I don't remember a time not loving Jesus, okay? But the, but the point is this, that uh, the gospel is making converts in the world. And maybe we don't like that word, but what, what that entails is that God is changing the hearts of people. I know that one of the obstacles that I come up against, the way that Satan wants to get in my head is, uh, look, if people didn't grow up with this value, they're not going to appreciate it now. And that's just bogus because God is the one who works in people's hearts. Um, and if he's the one working in their hearts, then even a guy like Paul is not too far gone, right? Um, even a guy like Grady is not too far gone. So uh, let's keep that in mind as well, that like God is doing a work in people's lives. And here's a testimony to that fact right here. Um, since you have the mic, would you pray for us, Trevor?
Lord, we do pray and we thank you for your grace. Lord, as Scott prayed earlier, such a powerful prayer, we need to be reminded that, God, you have sent your son to purchase a people. God, that we exist not to do fun things in and of themselves, to plan vacations by themselves. Like, we exist to make much of Christ, to proclaim his praises, to declare his grace, to walk in newness of life. There's so much, God, that we have been granted access to through faith in Christ that our life is uh, identified with. So, Lord, may this be only the starting point for us as Christians at Maricopa Springs Church to seek to know the riches of Christ, um, that we might proclaim him as we should. And I pray, God, that we would all have a boldness to do that, Lord, because the world tempts us to be quiet. Satan hates the gospel. So, Lord, let us encourage one another all the more. Let us be zealous to be in the word, to be sharpening one another, and to be spurring one another on in love and good deeds that we might make much of Christ for glory. Amen.